Good morning. Welcome to Salem City Club. We're so glad that you were able to come today. If this is your first time attending one of our programs, we hope you enjoy it and we hope that you will plan to come again. We wanna thank you, uh, thank also our supporting business sponsors, KMUZ Radio, Lugene Fulbert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction, and Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home. A huge thank you to each of our members who renewed their membership and or gave a donation to Salem City Club this year. Your commitment and support is very important. We plan a full set of programs for this year, all designed to inform you and encourage civic discussion. I'm also grateful to Salem Reporter for sponsoring today's program. We know that Salem Reporter, like Salem City Club, works hard to keep the public informed. I'm going to ask the editor of Salem Reporter, Les Seitz, to say a few words. Les? Good afternoon and welcome to this session. Salem Reporter is very proud to be part of this program. You're in for a truly informative session the people you're going to hear from this afternoon are experts on Oregon politics, and that includes my colleague and good friend Jeff Mapes from our many years together at the Oregonian. I encourage you to listen closely to what they have to say. You know, all elections are important, but this one is shaping up as one of the more consequential of our time. That you are attending means you intend to be an informed voter. That makes you a better voter. But what makes you an even better voter is to be sure to cast your ballot. At the Salem Reporter, we'll do our part. We intend to provide fair, accurate, and in-depth reporting on the issues and the candidates to help you be informed and to help you decide which candidates to support and which measures to support. So now, I appreciate that you are here. I appreciate your interest. I appreciate our opportunity at Salem Reporter to partner with the Salem City Club and now let's go on to the program. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Les. And now let's have our opening program. Hello, Jan. Good morning or good afternoon, I guess it is now. Yeah, it, it's uh, afternoon. <laughs> so welcome. Uh, I will uh, let you start things off. Okay, thank you. Welcome to Salem City Club's first virtual program, part of our Fall Informed Voter Series. Uh, today we look at what's at stake in November, commentary on the measures and candidates on the Oregon ballot. Today's program features three of Oregon's most respected political commentators, Jim Moore, Bill Lunch, and Jeff Mapes. All three have appeared uh, in Salem City Club, uh, Club programs before, and we are delighted to have them back. There's nothing typical about politics in 2020. As we try to make sense of all the electoral noise, uh, it not only gets confusing, but it's downright exasperating. For years, Oregonians have grown to rely on these three pundits to provide a clear analysis of what voters can expect to see on their ballots when they arrive in the mail in just a couple of weeks. Speaking first this afternoon is Jim Moore, 
the political outreach director of the Tom McCall Center for Civic Engagement at Pacific University in Forest Grove, where he teaches political science. Moore also is the political uh, analyst for KATU-TV2 and KXL 101 FM radio, both in Portland. Jim will discuss the Oregon legislature, state and local races. Following Jim is Bill Lunch, who for 30 years served as the political analyst for Oregon Public Broadcasting, OPB, mainly on radio, focusing on Oregon and Northwest politics and government, but with some coverage of national politics as well. He's also a professor emeritus of political science at Oregon State University. Bill will discuss congressional races. Following Bill is Jeff Mapes, the senior political reporter for Oregon Public Broadcasting. He previously covered politics for the Oregonian newspaper for more than three decades. Jeff will discuss Oregon's ballot measures. And now, Jim, would you like to start us off? I would love to start us off. So it's uh, good to not quite see everybody. Um, I remember coming to talk to you uh, last election and you know putting graphs up and we talked about the independent party and what it wasn't going to do. We don't need to get into it today, but it continues to not do anything. Um, so what I'm gonna do is look at the Oregon legislature today and um, also the statewide races. And the legislature is really the most important part of that simply because uh, we have super majorities of Democrats in both houses, and there's a chance that could shift. Uh, at this point, I don't think the Democrats will lose either house, but they could lose their super majorities. And we'll get into some of the details of that. But first, a, a quick look at, at the uh, statewide races. Um, the big one, of course, is the Secretary of State's race, uh, Shemaya Fagan and Kim Thatcher. Kim Thatcher from, you know, basically the, the Salem area. Um, in that race, uh, it looks like Fagan, the Democrat, is moving along quite well towards election. Remember, we have a built-in bias towards Democrats simply because there are more Democrats in the state. And so Democrats do better. Uh, Republicans have got to break that 40% threshold in a state race. And right now, Kim Thatcher has uh, only about four to $21,000 in donations, whereas Fagan has about $1.2 million in donations. So clearly Fagan is better positioned to really win that race and move forward. As with the other races we're gonna talk about though, this could change if national issues, which Bill's gonna talk about to some extent, if those national issues all of a sudden come crashing into Oregon. For those of you with kind of long memories, you may remember the 2006 election in 2006, people running for county commissioner, of all things, were knocking on doors and people were asking them, how are you going to get us out of the Iraq war? What on earth? So uh, we, we need to, to, to see what happens with those national issues. Do they come into the local area? The other big issue, big races out there, really quickly go through them. Tobias Reed against Jeff Goodman for the treasurer. This on paper should be close. Goodman came within only 40,000 votes of winning that race, the Republican. Uh, but Goodman has only raised about 124,000. Tobias Reed has 567,000. Uh, Reed is able to run a statewide campaign where Goodman is not. And then Ellen Rosenblum going for attorney general for re-election there. Uh, her Dem Republican opponent, Michael Cross, has basically er uh, raised hardly anything. 
Um, the most famous thing that has come out of him is he's one of the people who thought Antifa people were setting fires in the last couple of weeks, and that seems to be the extent of his entire campaign. So statewide, it looks like the Democrats are going to do well at this point. Now let's get into the legislature. Remember, in the current Senate, 18 Ds, 12 Rs. When we look at it, there are actually two competitive seats. One is currently held by a Democrat, one currently held by a Republican. So that's where I'm gonna be really looking to see what happens here. So the one currently held by a Democrat is uh, the fifth district, which is basically the South Coast, currently held by Arnie Roblin. Roblin won this seat by only 250 votes out of 63,000 four years ago. So this was a really close election. And right now there are two candidates, Dick Anderson, a Republican, Melissa Cribbins, Democrat, who are running to replace Arnie Roblin. The money they've raised is pretty even. The issues are made a little bit more interesting because of things like timber unity, big in that part of the coast. Um, and so we're really gonna be looking and see to see, do the Democrats hold on to this? Remember it was super close last time. In the intervening four years from 2016, Democrats have actually picked up more registered voters. So if this is truly a national election, truly turnout is big for both parties, the Democrats should hold on to this. But right now it's one of the ones I'm watching closely. The other one, right in your neck of the woods, Denise Bowles and Deb Patterson uh, going into the Jackie Winters seat. You know, this is the one where, where the big issue uh, is going to be as the demographics change. Right now, Democrats are, there are more of them by about two percentage points than Republicans in the district. So can Bowles hold on to the seat or does Patterson come in and, and win it? Uh, right now, if you're to look at money, they both raised a lot of money. So they're both able to wage really quality campaigns. Um, it's gonna be basically turnout issues. And do people in Salem favor the incumbency of Bowles who wasn't elected, she was appointed into the seat. So does that work? Um, that's gonna be something that we're gonna be watching really, really carefully. An issue that you will know better than I is the issue of Bowles walking out with the Republicans, senators. Is that gonna be a part of the campaign? Um, and is that gonna move voters? We're gonna look at that. Another Senate seat that I've been looking at and it hasn't really taken off the way I thought it was over in Bend. Uh, Bend growing very quickly and the heart of Bend is becoming much more democratic. House districts and Senate districts kind of go into Bend and then out of Bend using the suburbs and things like that. Uh, that's where Tim Knope, Republican, is the incumbent there. Um, would he have a strong challenge? Uh, he's been challenged by Eileen Kiley, who's a, a Democrat. Um, at this point, uh, Knope has raised like more than half a million dollars. He really wants to keep this seat and he's running really hard. Also, when the Republican senators walked out in 2020, he didn't. He, was, he stayed back in Salem to basically represent the caucus. So he walked out in 2019, but he didn't walk out in 2020, a very specific choice by the Republican leadership and him to show that he was there working for the people. I don't think this is gonna be as close as I initially thought, but we're gonna keep an eye on it. Then we get over to the House. Once again, 38 Democrats, 22 Republicans. So here's an overview of the House. In modern Oregon history, basically since the mid 1950s, the highest number any caucus has had is 38. It happened with Republicans in the 1960s. It's happened with Democrats 
um, much in, the, in basically the last 15 years. Um, and so 38 seems to be this weird ceiling that is there. Can the Democrats break through on that? Right now, there are actually five competitive seats. Democrats currently hold three of them. Republicans currently hold two. Um, and so there is a chance that the Republicans could gain seats and reduce that supermajority that the Democrats have. Big races. Once again, the South Coast. Uh, this is uh, currently held by uh, Caddy McCown, a guy named Cal Makamoto, a Democrat, and Boomer Wright, a Republican, are going for it. Um, right now, the Republican has raised a lot more money, so, but it's going to have the same issues that that Senate seat did. Do the Democrats turn out because it's more of a national election? Another one right in your neck of the woods, Selma Pierce and Paul Evans. Remember, uh, Pierce and Evans ran against each other in 2018. Evans won. That's why he's the incumbent. Uh, they have both raised a lot of money. Uh, and I'm sure you're seeing a campaign that is pretty lively as they're going at each other. Um, there, the party registration has actually gotten more Democratic just since 2018. Not much, but it's shifting more Democratic. So party identification is going to become a crucial thing, as well as the incumbency for Paul Evans. And then we get uh, House District 26. This was uh, Rich Vile's seat. Rich Vile was a Republican two years ago who lost and then went to work in the Secretary of State's office. Uh, Courtney Neuron beat him, and so she's the Democrat incumbent. She, she won by a very small margin, and so the, the Republicans are going for that seat in a big way. The Republican has actually outraised Neuron, but Neuron has the advantage of the incumbency, and Neuron is, is actually, her fundraising isn't that far behind, so a lively one there in the Portland suburbs. Um, we get to the North Coast. This is, I think, the most fascinating one. This is Tiffany Mitchell's seat. Tiffany Mitchell won only by a few percentage points in 2018. This is where Timber Unity tried to recall Mitchell during her time in office that we just experienced in the legislature. That, that did, they could not get the signatures. Um, but the Republicans think they have this one, they can win it. How do we know that? The Republican opponent, Suzanne Weber, at this point has raised $306,000 compared to $138,000 for Booth Schmidt, uh, who, is, who is a Democratic nominee. The Republicans really want this seat back. If there's going to be a flip, this is where it's going to happen. Uh, the Republicans have their best chance. Then we get uh, to the Portland suburbs going to the west, uh, District 52. Uh, Jeff Helfrich uh, from Hood River is running as a Republican, he lost to Anna Williams by only 900 votes two years ago. So once again, another rematch here. Um, when you look at the party registration, it once again is going more to the Democrats. And here the Democrat is doing a pretty good job raising money, but Helfrich, the Republican, is raising more money. So he's doing what a challenger needs to do to win. And then the last one is, once again, Bend. Uh, Sherry Helt, who you may remember two years ago, she won her seat because the Democratic nominee was a Bend City Council person who basically blew up. He had charges of sexual harassment and things, and he would not leave the race. And so she just waltzed right in. Um, this is where the, the Democrats, they have now a huge advantage. It's a 36% for the Democrats, 22% for the Republicans, a 14% difference in the registration numbers there. 
So the, the Democrats are really going for this one. Uh, Jason Croft is a district attorney in the area, um, but help knows that she's in trouble. She has raised $472,000. She could almost run for a statewide office with that amount of money. Croft has only raised $91,000. So I, this is, I'm going to be watching it carefully, but this is one where I think that the Republicans will hold on to the seat. And then there's the dog that didn't bark, once again, from your part of the world, District 19, uh, Rachel Moore Green. She's the one who was appointed when Denise Bowles became the Jackie Winters Senate seat. Uh, and Jacqueline Lung, the Democrat. Um, Moore Green has raised, same thing as we saw in the Bend area, $474,000 out there. Um, so she's well on her way. The Democrat has only raised $43,000. I think that uh, more green is going to be able to basically spend her way into winning this particular race. And as somebody in the Portland area who sees her ads all the time and says, who the heck is this? Uh, she's certainly spreading her name far and wide. So that's just a, a brief overlook at the, at the, the, the legislature and some of the statewide races. And now let's go to Jeff, who's going to, or to Bill. Bill, that's what my list says. We'll go to Bill and look at some of those congressional races and national issues. Uh, good afternoon. Um, I'm, we've got a presidential election going. Everybody knows that. Uh, but there are also very important congressional races I'm going to focus primarily um, on the western part of the United States um, because there's so many that could be mentioned. Uh, and my thanks to Sharon and Les and Cindy, Hans uh, and Jan, all of whom were very helpful in getting me connected to um, Zoom, which I had. I am not a technical wizard and I had great difficulty. Without those folks, I wouldn't be here. So thank you to them. Um, in the U.S. Senate, uh, we can start at home. Jeff Merkley is running for re-election. Uh, he's up against a Republican nominee, Joe Ray Perkins, but uh, she's a weak candidate, uh, has not raised very much money, and isn't likely to. Um, the reason that there isn't a more uh, serious or senior kind of Republican running is that there was recognition among those politicians that Merkley was very likely to get reelected. So we don't have to uh, spend very much time on that one. Uh, in the Western part of the United States, however, there are um, a number of much more competitive races for the US Senate. The reason this is important is that currently the Republicans have a, an advantage of 53 seats in the Senate to four, effectively 47 for the Democrats. Two of those are independents who caucus with the Democrats, but for these purposes, we can count them as being um, Democratic. Uh, so if the Democrats can pick up three seats in the US Senate, and if Joe Biden uh, and uh, Kamala Harris win the presidential and vice presidential race, then the vice president in, in this example would be Harris. She would be able to break a tie of the Democrats. Uh, if the Democrats pick up four seats in the U.S. Senate, then they would have outright control. Um, anyhow, let me run through the Western states, which are reasonably close by, um, uh, and the races that are competitive. In Arizona, Mark Kelly, who's a former astronaut and is married to uh, Gabby Giffords, who represented one of the congressional districts 
in Arizona until she was shot uh, in an assassination attempt. Kelly is running for the Democrats against an appointed incumbent, uh, Martha McSally. Uh, she was, uh, McSally was appointed to John McCain's old seat. The uh, polling in Arizona shows Kelly ahead uh, frequently in most of the polls by double digits, by more than nine points. Um, but it is still a competitive race. Um, the most uh, respected national uh, political reporters have this as a likely flip, that is to say that Kelly is likely to defeat McSally, but still it's a competitive contest. Similarly in Colorado, which is not so terribly far from us, um, there is a, an elected incumbent, um, Cory Gardner, who won uh, this seat uh, six years ago uh, by a narrow margin. He is being challenged by the former governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper. And again, the uh, polling suggests, though not the margin isn't as big as in Arizona, that Hickenlooper is ahead and that this is uh, a, a race where it's likely that the Democrats will pick up a seat. Uh, but again, it's very competitive uh, and we don't really know for sure how that one's gonna go. Uh, the, the other competitive Senate contest here in the West uh, is in Montana. The incumbent senator is Steve Daines. He's a Republican, but he's being challenged by Steve Bullock, who's the governor, uh, or by now, uh, I guess I guess he still is the governor. <laughs> He'll soon be the ex-governor. Uh, but uh, Bullock is the governor and is quite popular. Um, and so although Trump is fairly well ahead in Montana, uh, there's the possibility that Bullock might be able to defeat Danes in the Senate race. In this case, uh, the shoe is on the other foot. That is to say the Republican Danes is marginally ahead. Uh, so the sort of nonpartisan election analysts uh, think that Danes is likely to prevail and retain this seat for the Republicans. There are a number of other close Senate contests in the United States. I'm not gonna go through them in detail, but in Maine, Susan Collins, the US Senator is being challenged by Sarah Gideon, who's a former speaker of the State House of Representatives there. In North Carolina, Tom Tillis, who's the incumbent senator, is being challenged by Cal Cunningham, a Democrat. Uh, that one is very, very close. Similarly, in Iowa, Joni Ernst, who is the incumbent Republican, is being challenged by Teresa Greenfield. Uh, that one is very close with Ernst, uh, the Republican, marginally ahead. In South Carolina, of all places, a big surprise, uh, Lindsey Graham, who's the incumbent Republican senator and has been for a long time, is being challenged by Jamie Harrison, a former state representative. That one is very close. Um, it is uh, striking to say that it's possible that in South Carolina, the Democrat might prevail, which would be the first time in a very long time if it were to happen. And then finally, in Georgia, David Perdue, who's the incumbent Republican senator, is being challenged by John Ossoff. Again, a very close race. In this case, Perdue is marginally ahead. So those are the uh, most competitive U.S. Senate races that we have. For the uh, U.S. House of Representatives, I'm just going to talk about the contests that are close to us. Uh, in the 4th District, I live in Corvallis, and Corvallis is on the northern edge of the 4th District. Uh, Peter DeFazio, who has been in uh, the U.S. House seat for a very long time, is being challenged by a young man named Alex Scarlatos. 
um, who is something of a hero for having helped to prevent a terrorist attack in France on a train um, and was recruited by Republican figures uh, in that district to run. Um, that is uh, a race where DeFazio has deep roots in the district. He's represented it for decades. Um, so he's likely to prevail, but the Republicans uh, are clearly thinking ahead. If DeFazio leaves, if he were to retire or run for another office, let's say, uh, then uh, the Republicans are essentially grooming Scarlatos uh, to run uh, and would be probably pretty competitive because the fourth district in its in totality uh, is a pretty competitive district, though it does include Corvallis and Eugene, which are both quite democratic cities. Um, then we have uh, a, a kind of a footnote in the second district in Oregon, the great big uh, district that runs all the way across uh, eastern Oregon down into southern Oregon to Medford, for example. Um, that district is physically enormous, but not so many people per square mile. Um, and Greg Walden, who has represented it for a long time, is retiring. Um, it's a heavily Republican district. Uh, the Republican nominee is Cliff Bentz, who used to be a state senator uh, from that area. And uh, given the heavy Republican uh, registration and voting patterns there, it's very, very likely that Bentz will be elected to the U.S. House from that district. Finally, just across the Columbia River, uh, we have a competitive race between Jamie Herrera Butler, who is the Republican incumbent. She was challenged strongly two years ago in 2018 by Carolyn Long, a professor at Washington State's campus in Vancouver. Uh, and uh, so Herrera Butler and Long have a rematch going this year because there'll be a larger turnout uh, in 2020 than there, probably, than there was in 2018. That's very likely. That's what usually happens in presidential elections. Uh, the thought is that that may work to Long's advantage um, uh, in 2018, Herrera Butler got reelected narrowly, 53% to 47%. Um, both of these candidates have raised lots of money. Um, it's a very competitive race. The nonpartisan election analysts, people such as Charlie Cook um, and um, uh, uh, Larry, Larry Sabato, uh, have this as likely to be retained by the Republicans, by Herrera Butler, but it's very competitive. So those are the, that's a quick run through of congressional and Senate races. And now I will pass the baton to my colleague and friend, Jeff Mapes. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, it's so great to be here uh, at the Salem City Club again, at least virtually. See my old reporting pal, Les Sites. More importantly, my uh, beef supplier. So where is my beef, Les? Uh, and, and of course, I've got to give a great uh, shout out to Bill Lunch, who was my uh, uh, partner on live radio every Friday morning for many, many years. We uh, did a, a political chat at the end of the week on OPB, and I have a lot of great uh, memories of that. So that was a wonderful experience. And also, of course, good to see uh, Jim Moore again. Uh, so my uh, part of the program can be summed up pretty quickly we're talking about four ballot, statewide ballot measures, uh, campaign money, cigarettes, psilocybin, and all other illegal drugs. So uh, it can be summarized very quickly 
And in fact, it's a very small uh, number of ballot measures. I know here in Oregon, oftentimes we're used to voters pamphlets where they have to have a separate one just to, to cover the ballot measures. And we, we're used to voting on a lot of things. Uh, because of the pandemic, frankly, it made it harder for uh, initiatives to qualify this time. Some of you may remember that uh, for a while it looked like there, there might be another measure on the ballot dealing with redistricting. There was an attempt by supporters of that to uh, gather signatures despite the pandemic and uh, for a, a measure to require independent redistricting. And they actually got a federal judge to order the state to greatly lower the signature threshold so it could get on the ballot, arguing that the pandemic was such a interference that, uh, that it was interfering with their free speech rights. That actually uh, didn't happen. Uh, the Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court actually pretty much shot that down. So as a result, we only have two citizen initiatives on the ballot. Uh, that's really the lowest number in, in modern Oregon history. Uh, so, so it's a small group. Let me run through them very quickly. The, the two that uh, are the most fascinating to me, uh, let's start with measure 108, which is a $2 increase per pack and the cigarette tax, other equivalent increases in other tobacco products also imposing uh, tobacco taxes for the first time on vaping products using nicotine. And so that is quite a big measure. And what's fascinating about that to me is that normally this is the kind of thing that the tobacco industry would spend lots and lots of money on. And in fact, uh, a very similar measure was on the ballot uh, down in California just a few years ago. And uh, you know, I think there was something like $90 million the industry spent down there. The amazing thing is they seem to have given this race a, a pass at, at this, by this sign you're, you're seeing uh, television advertisements from the supporters, nothing from the tobacco industry, uh, no arguments uh, in the voters pamphlet really from that the, the, the industry is put together uh, oftentimes through surrogates. And um, it really kind of looks like a sleepy campaign at this point. Uh, interestingly, though, the proponents have raised quite a bit of money. I think they're up over $12 million now. And they raised the vast majority of this way back in uh, literally starting in last year, I think, maybe even before the, the start of this year, which is very uh, early for a political campaign. But I think they wanted to make it clear that, that they would have a very vigorous campaign and, 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 and that if tobacco, big tobacco did come in here that uh, they, it, they would have a difficult time uh, just overwhelming supporters uh, with, with money. And, and I think to some extent what happened with the tobacco industry is that, that in California, uh, once again, as I said, a very similar uh, ballot measure and despite all the money that the industry's spent and, and they did outspend the proponents by quite a bit, it really didn't move the needle much and, it, and the measure to increase the cigarette taxes down there passed quite handily. And I think the industry must see a very similar dynamic in, in Oregon. You know, the, the, the number of smokers has gone way down. And I just don't think that uh, at, at this point, most people, for one thing, they don't have a, a, 
a personal stake in paying these taxes and uh, and the money is going for health care. I think that is something that generally is popular with voters. So that 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 is interesting to me. The other one that you're going to be seeing and probably I've already seen some ads on is measure um, one, 110, which is the measure to decriminalize uh, illegal drugs. So to replace uh, most cases, misdemeanor charges uh, are on, on the possession of, of a wide, really virtually all the illegal drugs you can think of. Of course, we've legalized marijuana in this state, but we're talking uh, you know, methamphetamine, heroin, cocaine, et cetera, and replace that with a non-criminal uh, citation, uh, $150, which could be waived if, uh, if you're, the, the, the person given that citation is willing to enter, uh, uh, go to an assessment uh, session in essence and, and you know, explore uh, the idea of, of entering into some sort of treatment program. Now, the other part of this measure that's very important is it also boosts funding for, uh, for drug treatment programs and it shifts a lot of money uh, that have come in from marijuana tax revenues, which have far exceeded projections. So that's sort of what they base that on. And they're shifting money over uh, to, to providing uh, drug treatment, and which is something that uh, we've had a real problem in in this state, particularly providing enough money for drug treatment beds. And uh, so, this would be the first state in the, the country to move toward decriminalization. Supporters say, you know, this really is, is a medical problem, a drug addiction, and we should treat it in non-criminal ways that the so-called war on drugs has really been a failure. The group that is supporting this and, and really has put this measure on the ballot is the uh, Drug Policy Alliance uh, a New York-based group that has been active in, in uh, marijuana legalization measures around the country, and they've advocated for uh, drug decriminalization for a long time. And so Oregon is really kind of a, a test case for them. And uh, it'll, it'll be very interesting to see how that, uh, that campaign goes. There is an opposition campaign, much less well-funded, and um, they've, they've argued that uh, that now most people end up being diverted to drug treatment programs instead of being convicted for simple possession anyway, and that this can often be a spur to get people into uh, treatment. So there's a lot of uh, arguments about it. It's a fairly complex measure. And uh, I think at this point, I will uh, turn it back to the host. We've been so efficient. I think we're a little bit ahead of time even. Good afternoon. My, um, I'm Cindy Condon. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. It's nice to get some perspective from those with such experience and insight into local, state, and national politics. Thank you, Jim, Bill, and Jeff for that deep insight. As Jan mentioned, this is our first virtual Salem City Club meeting, but we know for many of you, it's not your first. You've been probably doing these virtual meetings since March. We've chosen a format we thought relatively easy for people to navigate. 
For this question and answer portion of the program, all of those people registered and logged in on a device should have a raise hand button at the bottom of their Zoom screen. If you have questions that are a question you would like to ask our speakers, please click on the button to raise your hand and we will call on people as we can. Your microphone will be activated by the host when called on, but you must click on your microphone icon to unmute yourself to ask a question. Let's practice um, raising hands. I see a couple of them already raised, but um, for people who haven't um, used that feature, can you just raise your hand to test it? Perfect, it looks like, uh, it looks like we have experienced Zoom um, users. And for those of you on the phone, you can certainly ask a question too. Um, please press star nine to raise and then lower your hand, star nine to lower your hand, and star six to unmute or mute your phone. So if all of you who raised your hand can lower your hands uh, before we start um, questions, we'll, uh, we'll go on for a, a moment or two before we start questions. Questions can also be asked in writing via the Q&A feature at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Again, this is new for us, and so we are trying to keep track of questions. So I'll apologize on the front end if we miss your question. And unfortunately, unlike a live meeting, there's not time to race to the stage and talk to the speakers. So um, apologies for that beforehand. So the question and answer period will be much the same as our live programs. Given our limited time and as is our custom, if called on, please ask a question rather than make a statement. It, um, again, if you've joined by telephone, um, you can raise your hand by pressing, raise and lower your hand by uh, pressing star nine and then star six to unmute and mute yourself. So with that, let's get our question, questions started. And so I'll be calling on you, and then we've got a wizard in the back, back room that will um, unmute you. So um, Brian Hines, you have the floor. So Brian, Mute. you just need to unmute yourself. Unmute. There you go. Jeff, can you hear me? Uh, yes. Uh, I was wondering why you didn't mention measure uh, 108, the only one you didn't mention, oh the seven measure. Right. No what do, you, what do you think the chances are that it'll succeed? I'm in favor of it, of course. Yeah, Not I'm of course, but that. I'll take a, a minute or two to talk about measure 108. That's what happens when I go out of uh, uh, sequence with the numbers, you know, from what I thought was the most interesting. Uh, yeah, that's a measure to uh, amend the state constitution to make it clear that voter uh, are that uh, legislators or citizens can uh, pass limits on campaign contributions and expenditures. Uh, a little bit, the measure has been seen as somewhat moot because the Oregon Supreme Court, uh, as you recall, last year, God, was it last year? No, it was this year. Now I can't remember you know, with the pandemic, but the, the Oregon Supreme Court reversed their earlier opinion from way back in the late 90s, uh, where they had basically said, uh, 
particularly tight campaign finance limits are a violation of Oregon's free expression protections. And, and they struck down some limits that have been adopted by voters way back in 1994. Uh, the Supreme Court now has, has opened the door to stricter limits on contributions. Now, this constitutional measure really sort of codifies what the, the Supreme Court decision said. And uh, so in that sense, it certainly sends a signal that voters want to see limits on contributions. Uh, as far as I've been able to tell, there, there really is not no organized uh, campaign against it. There hasn't been a lot of money put into the yes side. But, uh, I, you know, these things generally when Oregonians have had the chance to weigh in on limits on campaign finance, they've been supportive of them. So thank you for that question, Brian. And now Ron Ekus. Uh, actually, Brian just asked the question I was going to ask. And you don't have another? Well, I will, um, <laughs> actually. Um, and, it, and it's generally the impact on local elections that people think the national election might have, because everybody has cited how Democratic registration is going up, how turnout's important. And I just wonder what their perspectives are on how the fact that it's a general election in this particular general election with the uh, issues and the particular candidates we have, a particular political environment now, how important uh, you think or how, what effect that might have and how that might be different from uh, past history. Thank you for that. And if each of you could, could answer that independently, that'd be great. Sure, I'll take a shot at it first. Um, so there's a couple of things going on that I'm really looking at. First of all, uh, because the Trump-Biden race has got so many people's attention, there is a chance that what we're going to see is a big, what's called an undervote. People turn out, they vote for the presidential races, and then they go down and they look at the other ones and they say, you know, I don't know much about this one or I don't care. And so there's, there's fewer votes lower down on the ballot. But in Oregon, because of simply the number of Democrats versus Republicans, and remember, we have a lot of unaffiliated voters, but so far they've basically broken towards Republican and Democrat in the same proportion as their district breaks Republican Democrat. So we're not expecting you know, a lot of votes for independents or, or any other kinds of, of people out there. So in, in Oregon, that's gonna bring out a, a big vote for the Democrats, then does that play out as we go downstream? Now, there's another thing that I'm going to be watching really carefully. Remember, the president has been pretty clear that he doesn't like vote by mail. He thinks it's a fraud. He thinks it leads to cheating, all those kinds of things. In Oregon, over the 20 years that we have consistently done vote by mail, Republicans have turned out in vote by mail for, at a higher percentage than Democrats do. There are more Democrats, so there's more Democratic votes, but Republicans are a higher percentage. I'm gonna be looking like a hawk at that percentage as we get the daily results of how many ballots have come in. Will the president in effect have caused an undervote for himself by discouraging Republicans from casting their ballots by mail? So that's gonna be another dynamic that I'm gonna be looking at that national coming into Oregon politics. Okay, Jim or Jeff? Uh, uh, 
How about poor Bill? I mean, Jim or Bill, sorry. <laughs> uh, all right, let me, let me take a shot at this. Um, I think everything that Jim said is very sensible and, and he's watching many important dimensions to the election this year. I would add something that's very marginally historic. If you go back to 2018, two years ago, we had the highest turnout for a midterm election essentially ever. You can go, if you go back more than a hundred years before there was widespread voter registration, you can find uh, midterm elections in which the turnout levels were technically higher, but it's comparing apples to oranges. In modern terms, um, the, the 2018 elections had the highest turnout we've ever seen. What that means for, what does that mean for 2020? It suggests that we're going to have more people voting, a larger fraction of the potential electorate. Potential electorate is anybody who could register to vote. Uh, more of them we expect will be registering. This is on a national basis, not necessarily here in Oregon. Um, and among those who are registered, we anticipate uh, if we get the same patterns as we did two years ago, that we will have a higher level of, of uh, voter participation. Uh, that will vary state by state, so that in states such as Georgia, for example, where the officials have done a variety of things to discourage and make it difficult to vote, uh, probably the level of, of uh, participation will be lower. But in states such as Oregon, where officials do what they can to try and encourage people to vote, we're likely to have a higher level of participation than we have seen uh, even in prior presidential elections, which is when we always get the highest level of participation that we see. In terms of how that works to the advantage of one part or the other, I think Jim has it right. That is to say, given that there are significantly larger numbers of registered Democrats, um, they are likely to have the advantage in this. And then let me just a footnote to that. As Jim, Jim mentioned, those who are registered as declined to state or independent or other kinds of, of uh, registrations, um, it turns out that beneath the surface, those folks really, most of them are partisans. Uh, they just don't want to admit it. Um, and then, if, so if we look at how they actually vote, uh, in Oregon, among those who decline to state or register as independent, that kind of thing, they tend to vote for Democrats more than they vote for Republicans. Uh, so, the, and by the way, those who decline to state or register as independents have a somewhat lower level of turnout than registered Democrats or Republicans. So on balance, assuming we get the higher turnout, which it looks as if we will, uh, that in this state at least, that should work to the advantage of the Democrats. Uh, yeah, I would, I would generally uh, agree with that. I mean, this is still a Democratic-leaning state. The one thing I'm going to see uh, be interested in seeing is whether this, uh, the national issues sort of bleed down to Oregon, particularly in a rural urban kind of split. A uh, couple things, for example, uh, President Trump has made quite a bit about Portland. Portland is his favorite, uh, you know, anarch uh, example of anarchy in the country, it seems like. And, and I think uh, that has built up a, a, a fair amount of antipathy toward Oregon among his supporters, particularly in rural Oregon that were, you know, they've already uh, had a, 
quite a bit more level of anger, urban Oregon over uh, the climate change bill in the legislature, over a lot of Governor Brown's restrictions on uh, business activity uh, since the start of the pandemic. And it's going to be very interesting to see, for me to see if we see that reverberating some in the legislative races. I know there uh, are uh, Democratic strategists I've talked to who are worried about the prospects of some of their candidates in rural areas. You know, Jim mentioned some of those, such as down, uh, you know, along the coast and, and that sort of thing. Also, the DeFazio-Scarlatos race. Certainly, Scarlatos, judging from the press releases I get regularly from him, spends a lot of time uh, attacking the uh, Portland protests. Uh, the, he, he also has uh, criticized the restrictions on business activities, you know, uh, pandemic related. And so I think uh, that'll be interesting to see. I, I expect even more so than in the, uh, the 2016 election that Trump's support in Oregon will be focused in the smaller towns and the rural areas. You know, in 2016, he got about the same percentage of the vote that Mitt Romney did four years before, but he didn't do as well in the suburbs, but he did bet better in the rural areas and the small towns. And I expect that to, uh, that, that we'll see something similar this year as well. Okay, thank you very much for that. And thanks for all three providing insight to that. So Eileen Kay, you have a question and have the floor. Hi, can you hear me? Uh, yes. my, a little bit louder if you can. Okay, um, anyway, uh, this is about the presidential that uh, Trump has said he's not gonna leave office if the numbers aren't in his favor. He really controls everything already, the courts and the Senate and state legislatures. The only way I think to get him out of there would be for the military generals to disobey his orders. Do you think that, that, would, that they would disobey his orders? I'll jump in on that. What the heck? <laughs> um, so first of all, if you watch Your Voice, Your Vote on KTU on Sunday morning, you'll hear me talk about this in more detail. Um, will, the, will the military, let's, let's start from the, the end of your question and then go back a little bit. Will the military disobey his orders? At noon on January 20th, regardless of whether the oath has been taken or anybody has conceded, if there is a new president elected, that president takes office and the military no longer takes orders from the old president, period. End of discussion. So if, if Biden has won, that, that's the end of all the Trump stuff, whatever the Trump stuff is. But the second part is, is the president disparaging the election, saying he won't accept the results and things like that. First thing, you may have noticed that yesterday, many of the Republican leaders in Congress basically said, oh, ho, 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 I don't think so. If there, there will be a transition of power, just as there has been a transition of power in the past, that will happen and that's what we support and that's what we will work towards. So that's one thing. The second thing is the president, like many people, thinks we have a national election. We don't. We have 51 entities, including the District of Columbia for president, and each of them determines what is legitimate, who's a voter, who's not a voter, what the results are. And so it's, it's the, the president, this is what I do with anybody who's in office. You listen to what they say and that's great, 
but what resources are they developing? What are they pushing towards? And at this, aside from some lawyers who are kind of getting ready, but Democratic lawyers are getting ready for state by state challenges, I just hear a lot of rhetoric designed to move his base rather than a true threat against uh, the election itself. But it's really interesting to go in. Um, many people have been writing pieces about this is what could happen. I'm a skeptic. I wait for the dominoes to start falling before I start to panic. Thank you. And in the interest of time, we'll move on to the next questioner. Um, so Marvin, you have the floor. Hey, I wanted to ask all three of you that uh, the there's a Green Party candidate for the for Merkley seat. There's a Green Party candidate on the ballot for the Secretary of State. I think District Four U.S. House has a Green Party candidate. And I wanted to ask you guys, what is your threshold for discussing uh, third party or minor party candidates? I think in Bill's area, I think Benton County had a ranked choice voting pass. Uh, so anyway, I just want to ask you about these minor party uh, that are quite valuable in Oregon's politics. They raise issues that cannot be raised by either major party. Thanks. Well, shall I take that since I'm uh, the, the I represent media, I guess, and <laughs> more than the other two, being a political reporter for uh, over three decades now in Oregon, and I often hear that uh, you know from voters who say, "Well, why not more coverage of the minor party candidates?" and and that is a tough uh, balance to make, you know, because we we do have limited resource, and you want to focus the attention on the candidates who who generally seem to have a real chance of winning. And uh, I've certainly covered my share of elections where uh, third party candidates or independent candidates have certainly had a potential impact on the race, not necessarily in, even in terms of winning, but just in terms of affecting the, the, the vote. The most famous example I can think of is back in 1990 when uh, Dave Frommeyer and uh, Barbara Roberts were running for governor and uh, Frommeyer the Republican, Roberts the Democrat, and the this conservative group, the Oregon Citizens Alliance, ended up running an independent candidate because they weren't happy with Frommeyer's stances on uh, abortion, gay rights, uh, et cetera. And, uh, that third party or that independent candidate ended up getting, I think, 12 or 13% of the vote, arguably helped uh, Barbara Roberts get into the governor's office. And so I think the media, we tend to sort of look at viability and, and it's, it's not a hard and fast rule. And, uh, you know, it's not like, well, if you get to 2% of the vote, it's really more looking at circumstances and whether it seems like they're going to have an effect on the race. And I might, I might add, um, we've had a few races at the statewide level in Oregon where libertarian candidates, that's large L, uh, the formal libertarian party candidates, have drawn enough votes, mainly drawing from Republicans or folks who would otherwise vote for Republicans, that they have arguably uh, pitched the races, as Jeff was just describing, as happened in 1990. 
uh, to a Democrat by, by draining off votes from Republicans. Uh, but that usually we're talking about uh, vote totals in the range of four or five percent, something like that. Uh, so under those circumstances where a minor party candidate draws votes away from one of the major parties, as the Green Party does from the Democrats, for example, uh, then the minor party can have an impact in that fashion. But that's not typical. It, it does happen, but it's unusual. Okay, with that, I'm afraid we have time for probably one more short question. And so, Carlene, you have the floor. Carlene Benson. Yes, I'd like one of you, please, to uh, speak on the, the measure 109 about the psilocybin. Jeff. Yes. Um, yeah, I'll, I'm sorry, I didn't get into much detail on that either. Um, that measure would allow, uh, I think, it, and it has a two-year phase-in period, that, that measure would allow psilocybin to be used for therapeutic purposes under uh, the supervision of someone who is licensed to a new board that would be set up. And it's really seen as, as a part of therapy that could help people who are suffering from depression, uh, particularly, you know, end of life uh, type of issues and that, that sort of uh, stuff. And uh, what is a little bit interesting about that is that the drug decriminalization measure would uh, decriminalize psilocybin. So uh, in a sense, it, it uh, goes further than measure 109. And I think the backers of measure 109 still see it as a useful measure because um, you know, it would, would set up this new program that they think uh, is, is helpful. And so far to my knowledge, I haven't really seen uh, much, much opposition to that measure. Well, thank you for that. And I'm sorry, I think we have run out of time and I think we had one question that wasn't answered and I apologize for that. So um, thanks again to our speakers, Bill Lunch, Jim Moore and Jeff Mapes. We know you have busy life schedules and we had to reschedule this program and thank you for making that adjustment. And we can't thank you enough uh, for being with us today. And thank you to Les Zeitz and Salem Reporter for your support of Salem City Club and this program particularly. And I just wanna mention Salem City Club has partnered with the League of Women Voters and, and the American Association of University Women and Neighborhood Associations and are doing candidate interviews on many, many races. And those uh, interviews will be available on vote411.org in October. So um, we're pleased to be a part of that. And I just wanted to mention that. And with that, um, back to Sharon. Thank you very much. And thank you to all of our speakers today. And thank you for coming. Uh, we hope you'll also join us next Friday. We're going to have a debate between the candidates for the Oregon Senate District 10. Denise Bowles, Republican, Deb Patterson, Democrat, and Taylor Rickey, Libertarian. So register and join us. We'll see you next Friday. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>